Okay, so this morning we're in Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 10. In our Bibles, Ephesians has this basic structure with chapters 1 through 3 containing glorious and foundational spiritual truths. And then chapters 4 through 6 are very practical. A significant number of the commands in the New Testament we see in the later half of this epistle. Uh, For example, one of the central passages on anger in the Bible we find in chapter 4. We find uh, various uh, commands for how to handle family relationships and guidance there in this epistle as well. And there's, there's a lot more. Today's passage, we could say, is is a famous text. It's perhaps the clearest text against a works-based salvation. We see in verses 8 and 9, For you have been saved um, by grace through faith, and this not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, out of, not out of works, so that no one might boast. It's not out of works. It's so clear in this text. Um, such a clear uh, text against a works-based salvation. Before we get into the text today, I do want to point something out. The person jumps around in the passage that we read. So person meaning uh, you, like somebody else, versus we, like myself included. Um, in it, he switches back and forth between the second person and the first person. So in, in verses one through two, one and two, he's talking to you. He's talking to the Ephesians, and then in verse three. Through the beginning of verse 5, he speaks of we. He includes himself there. And then there's this parenthetical statement in verse 5, for by grace you have been saved, where he goes back to you and comes back to we in 6 and 7. 8 and 9, he's back to you, and 10, he's back to we. So he keeps going back and forth. Um, So just to to point that out, to get in front of that at the beginning of this, uh, how do we apply what Paul wrote to them? Uh, Keeping in mind there's still sometimes some real challenges, how do we how do we apply that to ourselves? Well, if we look at the surrounding context in the book, it seems like most of that he's talking about a Jewish and Gentile distinction. And uh, lest we assume that the Jews are somehow uh, less depraved than, than Gentiles, in verse 5 he's going to say um, that we were dead in transgressions, just like he says in verse 1, dead in transgressions and sin. You were dead in transgressions and sin. So, um, Based on the message today, we're on safe ground to apply this to all, even though Paul's kind of going back and forth. You, Ephesians, and we, all of us. Um, And like I said, the next section is going to really come to a head, the Jewish and Gentile distinction. So that's when he's going to show we're all one in Christ. Another thing that uh, pops out in this passage is that salvation is of the Lord. Uh, Who does what in this passage? It's Verse 5, it's God who makes us alive. Verse 6, it's God who raises us up with Christ. And verse 6, it's God who seats us in the heavenly places in Christ. The main emphasis in this text is that the action is done by God the Father through Christ the Son. And this shouldn't lead us to some kind of coldness or some kind of apathy or anything like that. But we need God to move or none of us would ever choose redemption or righteousness. Those who are far from the Lord, the call still goes out to repent and believe the gospel. But contrary to anything like like apathy or, or lethargy, since it's God the one moving, um, if anything, there's an urgency in this if we read the epistle. 
Paul later writes about redeeming the time in this epistle. He talks about not letting the sun go down on our wrath. He talks about resisting Satan near the end of this book. There's, there's a vigor in this life that God's given us. So the big themes that we see in this text, we see a true picture of man in the first three verses. We see God who greatly loves his people. And then we see a result that changes us. First, I want to talk about a true picture of man. So just like studying God is foundational to understanding the Bible, understanding life, reality, other people, and so forth, so a proper study of man is also foundational. For one, we have amazing feats by mankind. Just think of the last decade. Athletes, they're getting stronger, they're getting faster. Electronics are getting smaller, they're getting more powerful computationally. Uh, we just achieved net energy gain from fusion. Uh, the list can go on and on, especially if we look over a longer time span. Also, we see families where parents sacrifice for their kids, kids respect their parents, we see people who will face loss of reputation to serve others, um, even when it's unpopular. We know hardworking and honest people. But on the flip side, in the same decade, you see people who would enslave other people for labor or their bodies. We have great acts of violence all around the world. We have mothers and fathers who abandon or neglect their own children. We have religious leaders who abuse their powers and lie to people about God. We even have whole careers based on combating sin. Think about it. Policemen, there's people who make and sell security cameras, things like that, to try to prevent theft. Cybersecurity professionals. Uh, people make careers in these professions. They're necessary professions, and it paints a really bleak picture of who we are as humanity. But God hasn't left us just the history books and the news sources to figure out the nature of man. He's left us with clarity in the scriptures. The news and history books, they can help us flesh out what does this look like, how's it played out in time, but we have to look to the Bible to understand um, the, the true nature of humanity. And I'll say it's not. A simple answer. We have dominion over the created order. Obviously, to properly exercise this, we're to steward it responsibly, but we are to rule in the earth. We're made in the image of God. It's huge. That's a hugely important fact. Man's also like God, knowing good and evil, which is another important quality. And the second person of the Trinity took on humanity. But even from the beginnings of the Bible, we encounter a constant theme of evil within man. After the deluge, God says that the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. Today's text is along this thing. For it paints a miserable picture of man. Verse 1. We are dead in transgressions and sins. This isn't the, the testimony of some. You know, I was mean to this one girl on the playground one time, and I lied to my parents about this this thing one time, but I'm basically a good person. That's not the picture we get from Paul here in this text. We're dead in these things. Uh, and while Paul had already written that Christians have received forgiveness for our transgressions in chapter 1, verse 7, we really need a twofold rescue. We need a, a rescue from our debt, but we also need saved from our very natures. We sang this morning, grace that will pardon and cleanse within. We need both of those. Uh, verse 2, uh, we, we were dead in transgressions and sins in which we walked according to the roar of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit which is now working in the sons of disobedience. 
we walked in sins and transgressions, and we also walked according to demonic and satanic powers. Man is not autonomous. It's bad news for the so-called free thinkers out there. We either follow God or we follow Satan. We are slaves of sin or we are slaves of righteousness. We're either in the kingdom of Christ or under the authority of darkness. There's a wide road that leads to destruction. It can look all kinds of different ways. There are idolaters who live basically moral lives toward their fellow man. There's people who go to evangelical churches every Sunday. Uh, they have no gross outward sin, but deep down they, they have not been regenerated. There's people, And then there's people who live openly profane lives. There's people who are just kind of apathetic and lazy about spirituality and, and morality. This can look so many different ways, and it's all contrary to God's kingdom. In verse 3, we read that uh, we had our conduct in the lust of the flesh, doing the will of the flesh and of the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. So we wanted something, we would crave it, and then we'd act upon it. Or you could say we're brutish, we're like an animal in that way. But for the integrity of scriptures, I want to make an aside here. Think about what, uh, what uh, else Paul has written throughout his epistles. In the epistle to the Philippians, he says, according to the righteousness of the law, he was blameless. And now here, he puts him in this camp um, in terms of craving his lust, uh, being a child of wrath. So, here his conduct was in the lust of the flesh. Externally, he was perfect, and he thought he was also perfect in himself as well before he knew the Lord. A preacher of a century or two ago, made a good comment regarding this uh, this difference between Ephesians and Philippians. And, and what he says is, Sin is of a much deeper, subtler, wider nature than most men apprehend, or indeed that any can know or feel until they experimentally learn that God's commandment is exceedingly broad, that it demands purity in the inward parts, a perfection of obedience of body and soul, and a thorough yielding up to the service of God of every faculty of the mind, of every member of the body, of every thought of the heart, of every word of the tongue, of every action of the hand. That's that's reality right there. And it hit Paul, and he realized he was really a child of wrath, even though he thought he was doing everything right. Another thing we must say, there's no neutrality. Man is not basically a neutral party. There are only two camps that people are divided in, those who oppose the Lord, and those who follow the Lord. So from the beginning of this passage, we see that man is dead in sin. Our spiritual leaders are the spiritual adversaries of the Lord. They're against what is good and true. And we have a bad heart, and we're worthy of God's wrath. But next we have one of these great transitions in scriptures. But God. It's such a memorable transition in this text. And with that, how dare we give credit to man? We were dead in transgressions. We were dead in sin. We were walking according to the ruler of the stage, according to the prince of the power of the air, our practical livings according to the lusting of our flesh. We performed the will of our flesh and mind. Our nature was children of wrath. We were fallen, fallen, fallen. 
We are miserable creatures, but not just miserable, evil. But God, who is rich in mercy, through the great love with which he loved us. You can't help but think, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. To think not that we've loved God, but he loved us and sent his Son of propitiation for our sins. That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Verse 5, um, we got saved. What does that phrase mean? Does it mean we got rescued from hell? On this text, it means we were rescued from ourselves. We were rescued from our filthy lifestyle. We were rescued from Satan's bondage. We were rescued from our beast-like manner of living. We were rescued from our corrupt and our selfish will. And yes, also, we were rescued from the coming round. It's a package deal. It's a whole host of problems that are before the man apart from the Lord, apart from Christ, that we must be delivered from. It's not only about the afterlife. And God saved us when we were dead. There is a call to all men everywhere to repent. And we urge people to follow the Lord and to repent of their sins. But even then, we know we need God to move in them. Another thing, we could grow insensitive to what we were saved from. We can start to have brain fog about who we once were. It's good to remember who we were, to remember the, the beginning of the passage, in order to, for us to see our deliverance accurately. Uh, verse 6, he, he raised us together with him, and he seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. I'm continuing to meditate on this. It's interesting that it's a, a past tense of the verb that he uses here. Um, and this is a glorious truth. We're seated with Christ and talk about unworthy recipients like us. Talk about a gift. And I think it's good to let this truth permeate our minds when we're tempted to live in a way that's ashamed of him or his word. In verse 7, we see a reason for salvation that's bigger than us, that he might display in the coming ages the... Um, abundant riches of his grace and his kindness upon us in Jesus Christ. So into the future, God will be shown to be great through our salvation, and the riches of his grace will shine abundantly based on what he's done for us. And God's riches are all over this book of Ephesians. Um, his resources and his capacities are great. In chapter 1, verse 7, we see the riches of his grace. Uh, later in that chapter, verse 18, the riches of his glory of his inheritance in the saints, which I would say he's explaining in further detail in our text today. 2.4, God's rich in mercy. 2.7, the riches of his grace. We see that again. 3.8, the riches of Christ. And 3.16, the riches of his glory. So God's love is displayed in many aspects in this, in this epistle. And in our text today, we see his love. We see his mercy. Uh, he had some sense of pity or sympathy for us, and it was coupled with action. We see his grace, and we see his kindness. And then we get to verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not out of works that no one might close. This is a death, death blow to works-based salvation. We cannot boast that we have kept God's law. We cannot boast that intrinsically we've done something to make us less spiritually corrupt than our neighbors. 
It's God who's given us this fantastic gift. And then we get to verse 10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus to good works, which God has prepared beforehand that we might walk in them. Obviously, if we read this text together, it's an immediate application that we have for the salvation that God's wrought in us. God changes us. He changes us from a rotten tree into a good tree. And if we're a good tree, we'll bear good fruit. If we go a couple chapters later in this epistle, he's going to use the same word for created um, in chapter 4, verse 24. And put on the new man, the one according to God, created in righteousness and true holiness. So, we see the same idea. He's he's changed us. We could even maybe translate that better, recreated us. So, he's changed us. We can now do what is right due to the work God's done within us. So, we're walking a different way now. And let's take a step back or zoom out um, and make some bigger picture connections. So good works, Paul uses this word in verse 10. And uh, he uses it about a dozen times in other writings that he has. Um, he uses some other, uh, a different adjective a handful of times as well for good. That's sometimes translated good or beautiful. And I don't want to be too woodenly literal and say this concept's only seen if you have these two words together. But, but just a, a quick survey. Um, there's a famous passage in 2 Timothy 3. 2 Timothy 3.16. I bet some of you are rehearsing it in your mind as we flip there. For all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable toward, to teaching, to reproof, uh, toward correction, and toward training in righteousness. I bet some of us know that. Um, you know, important passage to remember what is what is scripture for. But the thought doesn't end there. If we look at verse 17, he uses connecting word he now usually translated that or so that. So he's continuing a thought. Um, so that the man of God might be complete toward every good work uh, fully. The man of God might be equipped toward every good work. So the scriptures are clearly a tool that God has given us to guide us in what is a good work, to help us to understand that. In the book of 1 Timothy, particularly, he uses this word twice for the ladies. Um, in chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, uh, a pretty well-known passage, ladies are not to dress or adorn themselves in an expensive or excessive way, but through good works. And then later in that epistle, when he's talking about the widows who are to be added to the care and service of the church, um, he gives qualifications there. He gives qualifications for elders and deacons in that epistle. He also gives it to this group of widows. And one of the things that he gives is that she attended to every good work. So these are things we see. They're a lifestyle. Um, and godly femininity is adorned by good works. 2 Corinthians 9, it's a well-known passage dealing with giving and money. Um, he mentions good works there. So we see 
how we handle our money, if we do it properly, that's a good work. In Colossians, Paul prays for the believers to bear fruit by performing good works. Um, there's other passages. There's one in Romans, one in 2 Timothy. I, I would say in their plain meaning, they call good works marks of believers. Uh, some would have other theological commitments and argue away from that, but I think that's a little bit twisting what Paul's saying there. So, it's a quick survey, um, but getting back to our text, we see a clear order to the good works. We were delivered from being dead in transgressions. We were delivered from following dark powers. Uh, we were living for our base and evil desires. It's not us who changed by deciding to do good one day. We need God to rescue us and to recreate us in Christ. And as a result, um, good works happen. That's what happens. And then another thing I want to, um, another theme I want to look at that's, that Paul uses elsewhere in Scripture, specifically looking at Ephesians this time, um, he uses this metaphor of walking twice in our text, at the beginning and at the end. And the first time he's going to use it is in this epistle, is in um, chapter 2, verse 1. So, if we were in the church of Ephesus, this epistle would have been read to us all at once. And um, so as you listen or as you read it later, you get this frequent picture of walking. Paul's talking about walking. And we see this consistent thought of the writer throughout this. So it would help us to think, what's he developing? Um, what points are, what, what's a big point he's trying to drive home? So, uh, like I said at the beginning of this text, it's actually verse 2, chapter 2, verse 2, uh, in which we walked. So we were dead in transgressions, transgressions and sins, and we walked in alignment with Satan and demons. But then, God, rich in mercy, has saved us. And now, in verse 10, we've been saved from that. We've been changed. We're his work. We're recreated in Christ, the good works. So he's made a path out of our own lifestyles. He's prepared a way. And now, um, we're to walk in good works, which God's prepared for us. Let's continue in this great transition, one of the greatest transitions in, in scriptures. Um, in chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. Um, and Paul um, encourages them to walk worthy of the calling in which they were called with all... Um, with all humility and meekness, with patience, enduring with one another in love, hastening to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bonds of peace. Um, so the, the apostles encouraging them here, what's our calling? He's developed that in ways, lofty ways throughout the whole um, first three chapters in ways that we really don't see um, in this much detail in the rest of Scripture. And let's consider something considering the, the structure of the whole book. Uh, engineers might call this something like theory to practice. So Paul developed a bunch of theology in the beginning of this book, in chapters 1 through 3. And now he's getting to the practical side of things. He's talking about how do we apply this. And uh, I point this out to speak some something that could be neglected in our struggle with sin, a, a neglected aspect of our lives. And it's perhaps sometimes we struggle because we're thinking too low of thoughts about God. 
perhaps part of our issue is we don't have a robust enough idea of spiritual realities to adequately understand who God is, what God's done, who we were and who we are now, what the stakes are, what's the bigger cosmic and spiritual picture that's beyond ourselves. Paul's developments in chapters 1 through 3, they're not only true and interesting, they're not only exciting, but they're important for practical daily living. We see he makes this transition. The, the calling in which we were called, now we're to walk differently. Continuing in this in this chapter, in verses 17 and 18, um, this I say, and witness in the Lord for no longer uh, for you no longer to walk just as the remaining Gentiles walk in the vanity of their mind. Uh, their understandings darken, being alienated from the life of God, and through ignorance in them through the um, hardness of their hearts. So he's pointing back to the things we know. There's parallels here to our passage, walking just as the rest of the Gentiles in the in the, the vanity of their minds, their their understanding being darkened. We see that in the passage that we read. He's developing a point where to live differently, where to overcome our own our old sinful habits. We go forward another chapter in chapter five, verse two, walk in love just as Christ loved us and gave himself um, as a sacrifice to God, as a sweet sell, sweet smelling aroma. It's a church summary of New Covenant ethics. This is how we're to live. We're to walk in love, just as Christ loved us. Uh, a little bit later in that in that chapter, in verse eight. Before that, he's um, talking about non-believers, which are known by their wicked actions. He states they have no part in God and Christ's kingdom, and that Ephesian believers used to partake in the same thing. But now they and we in Christ are to walk differently. In verse 8, for when you were in darkness, but now your children, uh, but now in light in the Lord. Uh, So walk as children of light. And then uh, just seven verses later, again, uh, we're, we're to be careful about how we spend the time. How we spend our time. We're to walk wisely, not unwise. So the picture, we were walking the beginning, we were walking apart from the Lord, dead in transgressions and sin, but things have changed. We used to partake in shameful activities, but now we're to walk as children of the light. We are to know God's will and to live with Christ as our example. We're to walk a different way. So back to our text, I want to make a few brief points of application First, most obvious in terms of verse 10, uh, remember we're called to do the good that God has already set us up to do. These great truths that we read about in our text, they're to change us. They're to change the way that we live. Next thing, we can't help but be thankful. We ought to use our lips to be thankful to the Lord. Uh, Not for sin. Later he's going to make this point, not for foolish talking, coarse joking, but, but for thankfulness. A third point, when we consider it correctly, it should destroy divisions and hostility among believers. The whole next section is um, is dealing with that, verse 11 through the end of the chapter. And if we consider, was there ever a time for believers to feel an 
superior or inferior in the church ever a time, it'd definitely be the first century Jews and Gentiles. But those differences are to be overcome. We're all one in Christ. So arguing from the greater to the, le- to the lesser, we shouldn't have any divisions or hostility. We're definitely not to look down on others or feel any sense of superiority. We need to remember, but for the grace of God, so we would go as well. And finally, it gives us hope. We were without hope. He's going to speak of that in the next uh, section. But it's God who rescued us, and he's rescued us, and we can now have hope. So, in this text, we must conclude that salvation is of the Lord, and that all we Christians have work to do in this life. Work that God has already made ready for us, and work that's a result and not a cause of God's free gift of salvation.